morning, church. How are we doing today? Good, good. How many of you guys are excited the Colts have their first game of the season today? All right. How many of you are excited that we're going to be in Daniel in the lion's den today? Yes. All right. It's a familiar story, right? This is one of those stories that whether you grew up in church or you didn't go to church, you're pretty familiar with it, right? There's a lot of these stories, right? Noah and... Right? David and... There we go. At least we got one person that knows what's up. Jonah and... There we go. Daniel and... The lion's den. Now, I think that we have a tendency to look at these stories, and they're so familiar to us that we kind of lose sight of what's really happening in them. And, and we look at stories like uh, Daniel and like Noah and like Jonah, and what we tend to do is we tend to make the wrong character the main character. All right? And what I mean by this is if, if we look at the story of Jonah, we look at this and we tend to think, wow, how cool that this man got swallowed by a fish. And that's kind of where it ends with us, right? But the real character in the story of Jonah is God. And the whole point of the book of Jonah is for us to see God's heart for lost people and how far he's willing to go to see people far from him come to him. So when we look at the story of Daniel, so many of us look at this and we're like, oh man, he got thrown to the lions. No, the book of Daniel is far more about God and about Jesus being king and his kingdom lasting forever. That every kingdom that comes before it, that they crumble, that they fall, that these rulers will fail, but that King Jesus will live forever. That's what the book of Daniel is about. Over and over and over again, we see these kings wrestle with what does it mean to not be the ultimate authority. See, Daniel... It's not about a lion. The book of Daniel is not about a furnace. The book of Daniel is about kings and kingdoms. And when I think back to my days of Sunday school, like I grew up in church, man. Every day the doors were open, my butt was in that building, right? So when I think back to my early, early days of Sunday school, and I remember hearing this story, I remember being told two things. One, if you are courageous, God will protect you. And if you are good, God will save you. I have a problem with that because God doesn't save you because you're good. He saves you despite the fact that you aren't good. Yeah. God saves us while we are sinners. God saves us while we are lost. Not because you're good, not because you're innocent. And so if you've ever looked at the story of Daniel and said, you know what, no matter what I face, I just have to be courageous and I have to be good and then God will save me, there's more to this story. We're going to look at that today. Now, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been digging into the story of Daniel, and I know that, that Brad has made this statement, and we've been talking about it for the last couple of years. We are a new covenant people, all right? And what I mean by this is that you have the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, and then you have the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, there was something called the Old Covenant, and this was an agreement between people and God. This was a document. This was uh, the Ten Commandments and the other 600 and something laws that, that God called his people to do, to follow, to obey in order to maintain right relationship with God. 
But Hebrews tells us that Jesus fulfilled the law, meaning when Jesus came, when he died, and when he rose, he fulfilled all 614 of those laws perfectly. So when you say yes to Jesus and you're standing before God uh, and he's judging how life went and judging how you did, what he's going to do is he's going to say, you know what, how did Craig do? And here's the law. But instead of seeing how I did at following the law, he sees how Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly on my behalf. All right? And so when we look at stories in the Old Testament, when we read these stories of people that lived in the Old Covenant world, we can't look at them the same way that these people did. We have to look at these as new covenant people through a new covenant lens. All right? So we are going to jump into Daniel in the lion's den. But first, we're going to jump in to Matthew chapter 5. All right, so if you brought your Bible, open up, we'll be in Matthew 5. Now, if you've got your phone, if you open up to InsideSEC.org, you can skip the www's, Brandon. Uh, go to InsideSEC.org, you can actually hit take notes right on there, and we've got all the scripture in there. Uh, you can type out notes, you can email them to yourself, it's pretty handy. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 11. It says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and place it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see the good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now these verses come out of a section of scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of Jesus' longest talks and the point of the Sermon on the Mount was to teach believers how to follow Jesus and how to serve as a member of his kingdom. And so for two chapters we hear about how you are blessed and woe to those that don't operate this way. And in here we see in five verses Jesus calls us to three things. He says one, be salt, two, be light, and three, get hurt. Be salt, be light, and get hurt. See, the first two, being salt and light, they are a challenge from Jesus for us as followers of Jesus to not separate ourselves from the world. Hey, I didn't come so that you could just move out into the woods and never see anyone and just set up shop and live in your own little kingdom. No, 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 no. I came so that you could be salt and light in the world. Do not separate yourself from the world that you live in. I'm calling you to be engaged with the world. I'm calling you to live in it, to be involved in it. And at the same time, he challenge us, challenges us to not integrate with the world. He calls us to get hurt. Why? Because if you're salt and you're light, if you're operating in the world but you're different, you're going to stick out. you live differently, you're going to get made fun of. You're going to be misunderstood. And so Jesus says, here's the deal. I'm calling you not to separate yourself from the world. So when you act the way that you do, and it's different than what they see, and when you believe things that are different than what they believe, you're not going to look like them. And they're going to make fun of you for it. But blessed are you 
for being persecuted in my name. Be salt, be light, and get hurt. What does it mean to be salt and to be light? Why is this even something he's calling us to? Because the world is dark and the world is in decay. Right? The world's dark and it's in decay. And so Jesus says, hey, here's the deal. It's dark, you need to be light. It's in decay. We need you to help preserve it. Be salt and light. To be light means to be attractive. Right? And I'm not talking like Brad Pitt, like attractive. I mean, apparently I have a thing for Brad Pitt. But uh, like physically attractive. We're talking like, do people like to be around you? Have you noticed that people come up to you, they start conversations, they want to be around you, right? Are you attractive in a sense that people like to be near you? Are you trustworthy? When they tell you something in confidence, do you keep it? Are you trying to make peace with the people around you or you just want to start arguments and bicker? Are you generous with what you have and the people that are around you? How are you doing with the relationships that God has put you in? Are you attractive? To be light means to be visible, right? Are you involved in the lives of people that are far from Jesus? Do you have any friends that aren't Christians? Do you live life a little bit differently when you're at work and when you're at home compared to when you come to church or small group? Be visible. To be light means to illuminate what is hard to see. See, people that live in darkness, right? We would say they live in spiritual darkness. People that live in darkness don't know they live in darkness until they've seen the light. Until they have experienced light and things have been illuminated and they can see things that they didn't realize were there. That's our job, to go and expose what is not seen. To be light means to be attractive, to be visible, and to illuminate what is hard to see. Jesus calls us to that. Jesus also calls us to be salt. On the ancient world, salt was used for purity, for preservation, for flavor, for healing, and for the creation of thirst. So when Jesus says, I want you to be salt, I want you to be salty, what he's saying is, I want you to be pure. Salt was actually used to, to cleanse things. It was used to fight bacteria. It was used to make things clean. Doctors used it and prescribed it for healing. We don't prescribe that unless it's pure. To be salt in our world means to be pure. To be salt in our world means to preserve what will rot if we don't get involved. What are the neighborhoods in our community that we need to get involved in? What are the issues that are attacking our community that we need to get involved in? What are the school systems that are struggling that we need to get involved in? What in the world is decaying that you need to get involved in? He's called us to be salt. Why? To preserve what is going to rot if we don't get involved with it. Being salt in our world means preserving. To be salt in our world means to add flavor or to enhance what is already there. Now, I like cooking, right? You don't get to be my size without not knowing how to cook. And so, uh, you throw salt on meat. Why? Because it enhances flavor. You make baked goods, you put salt in it. Why? You want it to be sweet, but salt actually enhances flavor. 
Salt on a lemon brings out a whole different flavor than if you don't add salt to it. Salt enhances things. We use salt for flavor in our, our culture, right? Back in this day, they didn't use it that way as much because it was far too valuable for them. Why would we flavor our food with it when we can heal with it, when we can use it to preserve things that are going to rot? Jesus calling us to be salt in our world means that we add flavor and we enhance what is already there. To be salt in our world means creating a place where people can heal. I'd say there's a lot of folks that could use some help. To be salt in our world means that people crave more after their encounter with you. I remember being 15 years old and showing up at a Super Bowl party that I was invited to. I call it a scam because I wasn't told that it was a church thing. So I went to this party and I met a man by the name of John Dewey. And I'll tell you what, I craved more of that man's attention every week after I spent time at his church. Do the people that you encounter crave being around you more and more and more? Have you created a thirst in them? Sounds like a creepy vampire story. Church, when we are salt and when we are light, we are going to live drastically different than the world. Which was Jesus' challenge to us. Don't separate. Engage with. Operate in. Live in. Be a part of it. But be different. When we are salt and light, it means that we will be attractive and we will be visible to some. And that we will be misunderstood. And that we will be easy to pick out to others. You know, there's a, a really famous Japanese proverb. It says, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down pretty applicable here, right? If you stand out, if you do not blend in, if you're the nail sticking up, right, people are going to see it. You're going to uh, have their attention. They're going to take notice. And they're going to try and hammer you down. Be salt, be light, get hurt. Because when you're doing the first two, the last one's going to come. The last one's going to come. So I don't know about you guys, but when I look at the entire book of Daniel over and over and over and over again, I see Daniel being salt and I see him being light and I see him getting hurt as a result of it. Chapter after chapter after chapter, we hear this is how Babylon operated and they invited Daniel into it and he said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to eat their food. I want to keep my customs. I want to keep my laws. And he stuck out and so he got hurt. We see this chapter after chapter after chapter. So now we finally get to Daniel chapter 6. And let's look at this story that so many of us are very familiar with through this lens of salt and light and hurt. Daniel chapter 6 verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. 
they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, in the beginning of Daniel, in chapter 1, we're introduced to a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And we learned a little bit about him, and he had dreams, and all this stuff happened. Well, Nebuchadnezzar passes away. And there's another king named King Belshazzar, and we see him in chapter 5. He throws this big crazy party, and he starts drinking out of cups that were taken from Jerusalem back when Daniel was. And all of a sudden, this hand shows up and starts writing on the wall. And Daniel interprets what is written on the wall, and he says, here's the deal. You've come up short. You don't match up. You're getting removed from power. And that night he was assassinated and the kingdom was handed to King Darius. So at the beginning of chapter 6, we're seeing Darius set up his government. We see him establishing the rule and the order for this kingdom that he's just taken over. And it says that he put into place 120 satraps, or we would refer to them as more like governors. Right? So there's all these different provinces throughout the kingdom. He puts into place 120 of these governors to oversee those particular areas. And on top of that, he places three administrators, with Daniel being one of them. It says that the reason that the king did this was to not suffer loss. It was a little corrupt at that point in history. So he says, here's the deal. If I'm putting this into place, I want to make sure that we've got leadership over all these areas, and on top of that leadership, we have more leadership, and on top of that leadership, you've got me, and I want to make sure that everything that's going on, that I'm aware of it. And it says that Daniel pleased the king so much. Why? Because he was salt, and he was light. That the king wanted to place him above even the administrators to where he would be second in command over the entire empire. This was a big deal. It's a really big deal. And so these other administrators, some of the sand traps are like, wow, tongue twister. Sand traps are saying, man, like we don't, we don't like this guy. Like he's weird. He's awkward. He's not one of us, right? He came here as a little like slave boy and now he's made his way all the way up here. That man will never be my boss. I refuse to answer to him. And they became envious and they became jealous of him. And so it says that they began looking into uh, his background, and they started looking to see if there was any kind of corruption. He was a politician, right? A lot of us would say politics, corruption, they go hand in hand. It says that they looked into Daniel's life, and they couldn't find anything. I think most of us, we look at this story, and we're like, okay, Daniel was really little when he was taken from uh, Judah, from Israel, and he's now in exile, and he's been in Babylon. Like, he's still a young guy. Here's the deal. From chapter 1 to chapter 6, 70 years has gone by. 70. Daniel's now in his mid-80s. So when these people are looking into his life, it's not like they're looking at a teenager. No, they're looking at an 80-something-year-old man and saying, he's never done anything wrong. I'm 35. I don't, <laughs> I don't match up to that, right? 80-something years old, and they're saying, we can't find anything that he's done. He's never done anything corrupt in government affairs. In fact, it says that he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Why? Because Daniel was salt and he was light. Salt and light. So these administrators quickly realize the only way that they're going to be able to get rid of Daniel is if they use the very thing that has gotten him to his place of power and command 
They're going to go after his relationship with his God. Because when you're salt and when you're light, you get hurt. Verse 6. It says, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Now, for the last five chapters of this book, we've seen kings that have struggled with pride. We saw Nebuchadnezzar over and over struggle with pride to the point that he actually went mad and was roaming a field like a beast and his hair was long and mangy and his nails were long like the talons of a bird and he was eating grass and was covered in dew. And he humbled himself before God and said, nah, you're the real king, not me. So that he was restored to his position of power. Belshazzar, Oh, I am king. Let us feast in my name. Over and over and over again, we're seeing these kings and we're seeing their vanity and their pride. And Darius is no different. We we see this group of men come up to him and they say, Hey, Darius, yours is the kingdom. Majesty, it's you. You are the only man that should be prayed to, that should be worshipped. And if anybody prays to any other god or any other man, they should be killed for it. Woe is Darius. Darius got his ears tickled in the way that he wanted to and was like, ah, you know, this sounds kind of good. I like this idea of being worshipped for 30 days where people don't worship anyone else or compliment anyone else, where it's all aimed at me. And they say, here's the deal. The only way that you're actually going to keep that is if you write it down. Because that's the law of your people. And so he does. They get him to write this decree down and sign off on it. And it can no longer be altered. Now what's interesting is that Daniel's response to this isn't to run and hide. It's not to run away. In fact, it says that Daniel heard this and he went home. He didn't find a closet on the interior of his house and pray in silence. No, he went upstairs into a room where the windows opened to Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day just as he always had. Why? Because Daniel wanted to be visible. Daniel was light in Babylon. Daniel was so focused on his relationship with God and what God had called him to that even in the face of facing punishment by another king, he said, nah, it's not worth it. You are my God and I'm going to worship you. Daniel stayed visible. He opened his window so everyone could see and hear what he was doing. That's salt and that's light. Daniel is pure. 
He's preserving. He's visible. He's being salt and light. Verse 11. It says, Then these men went as a group, and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king, and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human except you, your majesty, will be thrown into a lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of your exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort at sunrise to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. See, when you're salt and when you're light, you're attractive to some and you're hideous to others. So on one hand, we have this king who absolutely loves Daniel. He's attracted to Daniel, to who he is, to how he operates, and he is totally for Daniel. But on the other hand, we have a group of people that are so angry and so repulsed by Daniel that they want him dead. The people go to the king and they play into his pride and into his vanity, and now they're pointing it out. They're saying, here's the deal. You remember what you said? Yeah, this guy that you love so much, he's disobeying that. And this is that this actually broke the king's heart, and he's like, oh, I, I need to do whatever I can to try and save Daniel. And they're like, uh-uh-uh, you wrote it down. You can't take this back. They played the king like a fool. They used him against himself. And so they held him to his own decree even when it didn't benefit the king. And when you're proud the way that Darius was, you've got to keep face. Which means Daniel's going in to the den. Because when you're salt and when you're light, you get hurt. Verse 16. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Notice that that's what the king tells Daniel as he's thrown to his death. May the God that you serve continually rescue you. I'd say Daniel's been pretty salty. I'd say he's been pretty visible with this king. Verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den, and when he got near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. He said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den, and when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. 
at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and their children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. A king that issued a decree that for 30 days people should worship no one but him now issues a decree pointing to God. Say the results of being salt and light in the life of King Darius made a pretty big deal. His exact words, he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. You know, this story points us to a salvation coming in the future, right? This story takes place 600, 500 B.C., He's pointing to Jesus. This story is pointing us to a salvation that is coming in the future, which to us has already happened in the past. But Daniel said, God sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. And back in chapter 3, when King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace that he threw, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, I see a fourth man in there, and it looks like the Son of God. You know, when we look at the Bible, and we look, especially in the New Testament, and we look at the miracles of the Bible, none of them are ever just naked displays of power. And what I mean by this is, you never see Jesus walking with his disciples, and he's like, hey, check this out, right? And this volcano erupts. That never happens. Instead, what does Jesus do? What are his miracles for? He's with people. He's feeding the hungry. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's making the sick well. He's calming raging seas. These aren't naked displays of power. It's Jesus displaying how things are going to be in his kingdom. These are gospel revelations. They're pictures of how things were created to be and how things are going to be. The miracles of the Bible aren't suspensions of the natural order. They are restorations of the natural order. So when Daniel says, God has sent his angel and shut the mouth of lions, he's pointing to the biggest miracle that takes place in the scriptures. And as I read this story, I can't help but see some similarities to another story in 
the Bible. Let's see if some of these things kind of line up for you, right? Both Jesus and Daniel had jealous political leaders drum up false charges to arrest and have them killed. Both Jesus and Daniel had senior political leaders declare them as innocent and faultless. Both Jesus and Daniel had senior political leaders try and spare them from their death sentence. Both Jesus and Daniel were thrown into a pit and left for dead. Both Jesus and Daniel had their pit covered by a large stone, and both Jesus and Daniel had this stone covering their pit protected by a government seal. Both Jesus and Daniel had friends run to their tomb early in the morning, and both Jesus and Daniel raised up from their pit and assumed the position as second in command over an entire kingdom. Daniel passed away, but Jesus defeated death. You see, Jesus is Daniel's God, and Jesus is the greater Daniel. You want to know what it looks like to be salt and to be light? Look at Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to get hurt? Look at Jesus. This book is about far more than a lion. It's about kings and kingdoms. Constantly pointing us to King Jesus and his kingdom that is coming. Here's the deal. So often I hear people talk about, you know, what are, what are the lions in your life? Right? What are the things that are attacking you? What is the den that you find yourself in? And I want to point you to this, right? Jesus went to the ultimate den so that when we enter the den, we will not be killed. Jesus went to the ultimate den so that when we find ourselves in a den, we won't be killed. And here's what I mean. If you ever receive a medical diagnosis that looks so daunting, know this. Jesus has cured sin and death. He's closed the mouth on that lion. When you feel alone, know that Jesus went to the ultimate den, that he was thrown away, that he was cast out, that he experienced a loneliness that we will never have to experience. And by doing what he did, he restored the relationship between us and God, meaning we are never alone. Maybe you're crippled by financial debt and you're like, man, the den that I'm in, it's so heavy. I owe way too much. Here's the deal. Jesus paid the ultimate debt, meaning the debt that you're under, it can't kill you. Because Jesus closed the lion's mouth. Church, the only lions that can kill you, Jesus has taken care of. Which means whatever den you find yourself in today, it's got nothing on you. You will be raised out of it. The word Daniel in Hebrew, the name Daniel, Danny L in Hebrew, translates God is my judge. God is my judge. And I'd say he lived up to that name pretty well, didn't he? Because when you live a life with that perspective, when you live a life where God is your judge and only God is your judge, you can say, I don't care what you think. It's an awesome way to live. I'm not bound by your opinions. Why? Because God is my judge and no one else. When your perspective is God is my judge, it allows you to be salt and it allows you to be light and it allows you to get hurt and to not be crushed. Why? Because blessed are those that are persecuted or insulted in my name. 
Church, the only lions that can kill you, Jesus, has closed their mouth. This is good news. Let's pray. Jesus, I am just so grateful for this morning. I'm grateful for time in your word. I'm grateful for the story of Daniel and this account of a man living with salt and light in such amazing ways. Jesus, I'm grateful that, that you came and that you were the greater Daniel. That even though Daniel was innocent, you were even more innocent. That Daniel lived a life pursuing you and you went above and beyond and pursued God in ways that none of us ever could. Jesus, I, I pray that today, I pray this morning, I pray that those that find themselves in a den, that they would see you in the den with them. That the lions that they are so afraid of, that they will see you close the mouth. That you would be their hope in this season, that you would be their comfort in this season. God, I pray for those that don't know you. Jesus, I pray for those that don't have a relationship with you, that you would continue stirring in their hearts. I pray that they would see that the kings and the kingdoms that they are pursuing are going to fail them, but that you will reign eternally and that your kingdom will never end. Pray that as a church that we would be salt and that we would be light in our community. Jesus, I pray that we would be attractive. I pray that we would be pure. I pray that we would get involved with the things in decay. I pray that we would bring healing. I pray that we would bring light into the darkness. I pray that the folks that we encounter would thirst for more. And I pray that when we get hurt, that we wouldn't be discouraged, but that we would take heart because you're affirming that we are different than the world. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.